following episode of Critical Weave Theory, we'll have some content warnings for darker topics like abuse and depression, and we're also going to be spoiling basically all of Penguin Drum, so if you've been wanting to see it, maybe skip this one, uh, but make sure you check out Tony Sun, our guest today, who's an amazing person, and we're glad to have them. Also, previous guest Neil Caput has done us the honor of designing us a new mascot, so let me let us know what you think of her in the comments. Enjoy. Who are you, uh, friendly voice on the podcast? Hi, um, my name's Tony Sun. I'm, uh... An anime writer, a um, teacher. Um, sometimes I do uh, abolition organizing, but um, lately I've just been on hiatus because of health issues. You can find my work. Some of it has been published on Anime Feminist. Um, uh, I wrote an uh, article about kind of capitalism in Sarazanmai, and one about uh, Madoka Rebellion, um, and I actually got to know um, Mo originally uh, because I was like, um, because he helped um, read through my uh, uh, Madoka piece, and I was really inspired by his work um, in my on My Hero Academia, and I was like, hey, here's somebody who could probably talk about anime and abolition, right? Oh. It was a really good piece. I had a blast reading it. It, it really is. Uh, we'll put the link in the description, but if you haven't read Tony's piece on Monica Rebellion, I really recommend it. It's very good. I think that was like the piece that got you and I talking. Probably, because I can't imagine you reading a piece on Sada Zanmai before you've even watched it. No, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really like to look at anime through like kind of an abolitionist lens. Um, both thinking about the abolition of capitalism and the abolition of the prison industrial complex. And yeah, that's, that's, that's me. And also through, I guess, the lens of my personal experiences as a teacher, um, because that actually figures heavily in a lot of my work. And you can find me at, at Poet Pedagogue on Twitter. This will also be in the description of things. Hey, Tony, what does Poet Pedagogue mean? That is like... Uh, a teacher, but pedagogy is like the art and theory of teaching. I don't know, I came up with it because I was like looking for something that could say I like poetry and I like teaching. I don't really like poetry that much, but I was like, hey, it sounds cool. <laughs> I mean, it is fun to say, so. <laughs> this is this is the secret, the secret gossip you can only find out by listening to Critical Weed Theory. Right on, right on. Um, though... Speaking of Sarazanmai, uh, Sarazanmai is one of many works, by many I mean like, I think it's only four, or, well, four original works. Uh, Ikuhara also worked on um, Sailor Moon, I know that, uh, but um, Sarazanmai is one that you've written about, Yuriku Madashi is another one that's well worth talking about. Utena has been talked to death, but one thing I remember you talking about, and one of the reasons we're here to talk about this in the first place is because you mentioned that Penguin Drum so rarely gets seen through a leftist lens. What is Penguin Drum? Oh my gosh. Okay, so Penguin Drum is really interesting because Penguin Drum was like, 
Ikuhara took like a 12, probably 13 year break from creating anime. Um, he was just, I don't, I think he was probably like blacklisted from the industry for a hot second because Utena was too gay. Um, uh-huh. for, it was just too gay for everybody. <laughs> and so, way he, too you know, gay. As you do. Way too gay. <laughs> and so he went and he created an anime that is almost impossible to describe without spoiling it. Um, but I would say that it's like, how would I, how would you describe Penguin Trump? <laughs> Just it's hard to describe. I remember when I watched the first episode of Penguin Drum and I got back to you, I said, I like Penguin Drum because I really love neon painted hellscapes. <laughs> um, and that's how I would describe Penguin Drum. Penguin Drum is a show about uh, abuse and cycles of trauma uh, with lots of lots of cute things and abstractions to keep things to soften the edge is how I would describe it. There are, of course, penguins. Okay, yes. <laughs> you know, every time you describe Penguin Drum as softening the edge, I hurt a little bit. Because I was just depressed the whole time. <laughs> and that's the soft version. <laughs> yeah! Penguin Drum. Um, I'm very high on this show, though. I do concur that watching Penguin Drum is not, I think, in the purest sense of the word, an enjoyable experience. Uh, not in the sense that it's miserable or anything. Yeah, you were saying. Yeah, so I guess we should tell people, like, okay, I think I can give some ideas of the plot. So it's about three siblings, for the most part. Three siblings, Himari, um, Shoma, and Kanba. Shoma's the goodest boy. Shoma's the good one. Shoma deserves. That that's that's it. That's the sentence. Shoma deserves. <laughs> Kanba is kind of the edgy one who will do what he needs to to survive, and then Himari's the very happy to be here, but also very sick one. Mm-hmm. Um. So Himari, the the show kind of opens, you know, with Himari dealing with her illness. And the arc of the show is them trying to figure out how are we going to save Himari from um, passing away from her terminal illness. I think I can say that without spoiling too much. And they encounter all kinds of people along the way from their past, and they have to figure out how are we going to deal with our past. There we go. Penguin drum for the most part. Going forward, uh, we're going to have to spoil the entire show in order to talk about it, so... This is your warning. If you do want to watch Penguin Drum, be aware that there is, well, one, it's a show about trauma and abuse, so like, be ready for that. But also, there's a uh, sexual assault at the end of episode, I want to say, 14? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely 14. Yes, 14, 14, 14. It is the worst bit of the show. I definitely do get what Ikuharo is going for, but that doesn't mean it was executed well. It was a little spicy, you know, a little, a little, a little, why am I watching this? A little, I trust Ragva and Tony. Not even Ragva and Tony will defend that. Yeah, I, here, okay, so I, I feel, 
<laughs> I feel like I should I feel like I should say something about that cuz um you know the first time I watched Penguin Drum I bounced really really hard off of it for multiple reasons. Um th- the biggest reason I think well like one of the biggest reasons was that scene. Um I think that I had watched Utena so I knew that Ikuhara could handle sexual assault in a really meaningful and deep way. That's why I didn't just drop it like a hot potato. But also, um, more bigger than that, I think, is just that Penguin Drum, the first time that you watch it, when you don't know what's coming, as you said, can be really depressing. Um, especially, and I was personally going through, like, a time where it, like, I was facing, I was trying to help some of my closest friends through the systems that the show is talking about, like, homelessness systems, like, um... Mm -hmm poverty and cycles of abuse and trauma right and penguin drum does not sugarcoat anything and if anything it's about like how inescapable these things can feel right and how much sacrifice is required to actually break cycles of abuse and trauma and i was just not ready for that at the time but re-watching it i found myself really able to kind of accept more and more deeply some of the things that it was trying to tell me. On rewatch, you know, the first time through, it was like, I kind of came to the conclusion that it's my least favorite Ikuhara anime. But the second time I watched it, I was like, this might be my most favorite because it's the one that least, that doesn't try to sugarcoat anything at all. And I kind of appreciate that about it. Uh, my general experience with uh, Penguin Drum I, I think I'm the weird one in which the sorts these sorts of like hopeless, depressing sort of shows that you have to sort of like slog through and then think about for a week is like my jam. This is exclusively what I seek for. Uh, my favorite manga is uh, that one, which we're not going to name because it's an entire tangent. We're not going to do it again. Anyway, uh, but that one, it's also like again in like the same vein as penguin drum um so like i latched on to this and i continue to latch on to this right now because i really like what it's doing with metaphors i'm i'm very high on this show i mean Raku and i were talking about penguin drum earlier i i i finished binge watching it like yesterday <laughs> like last night i was like up until 2 a.m i just kind of <laughs> let penguin drum happen to me for a couple of hours um until it stops happening at the end um and i i think at first i was a little um i I was a little skeptical of like some like like liberatory or like abolitionist readings of penguin drum um but i think thinking about it more uh there there it definitely has like a lot of like good and interesting things to say um and just even regardless i was like engaged the entire time like i was like really interested to see like how what happens to all the characters um i was really touched when when the characters were sad i was sad when the little penguins were like jumping around i was like hey, that's, that's cute <laughs> you know um, it, it's definitely a show that that hits you and that has a lot to say about things to say about stuff, as I as I as I like to put it. Um, so I'm just uh, happy to be talking about it with the two of you.
the one final thing I think I want to say about Penguin Drum before you move into actual spoilers is I love the soundtrack. Um, both openings are done by Yakishimura Etsuko, who I know because she's one of my favorite artists. Also from her band, Sotaisei Ryudon, which I haven't looked quite like. Um, the first ending, Dear Future, is something I just listen to on repeat, and it's got a very strong energy to it. That's the other thing I really like about Penguin Drum. But with that being said, shall we move on to the meat of the show? What is Penguin Drum about, other than a paint washing machine? Here come the spoilers. <laughs> so it's Penguin Drum, like, I think that we can't, re- you can't really talk about Penguin Drum without talking about the Tokyo sarin gas attacks in the subways. Um, and I mean, this kind, this, this thread has been trod before a lot by a lot of different readings of Penguin Drum, because I mean that it is very clearly based on that. But I think that the, the part of that, that I don't see, the reason that I get kind of frustrated with a lot of readings of Penguin Drum is that I don't think that they're getting at the economic material suffering that led to these kind of terrorist groups forming and the kind of violence that happened. So so the Tokyo Sarin gas attack happened in the 90s in the middle of like a really terrible economic crisis in Japan where so many people were suffering. They were working insane hours for almost no pay. It's It's interesting to kind of think about that as a way to kind of look at how Penguin Drum represents its own version of the events. Like, whereas, like, in, in real life, it was a cult called the Aum cult. In Penguin Drum, it's called the Kiga group. Ikuhara was really influenced by um, a book called Underground by Haruki Murakami, in which he tried to understand, like, the social, like, circumstances of the gas attack. And I found it really interesting because I think that, like, what Murakami was arguing is that it's not just a bunch of crazy people who decided to, like, blow up a subway. I mean, or, you know, use sarin to murder a bunch of people. It was, like, a very specific manifestation of a problem in Japanese culture and society. Kamba, our edgy teen protagonist, uh, one of the things he does is he turns to terrorism and literal murder as a way of making enough money to secure housing for his family so that they don't get separated and secure money for medicine for his sister Himari, right? Those are the two main things that motivate him towards a terrorism. And while that doesn't absolve him of the harm he causes, Ikuhara makes a very clear point of how the lack of people's needs being met, or in another instance, as we see later with the Kiga group, the fact that there is such injustice in the world allows cults like the Aum cult and groups like the Kiga group to turn that anger away from the system of capitalism and towards society and the world as a whole. Right, and I think that that's really what differentiates, I think, um, Murakami from Ikuhara, because I think Murakami doesn't really focus very much on the... um, on these material conditions, right, that are leading these uh, these people to commit these acts of murder. He focuses more on this idea of, like, the self and the collective and, like, 
Murakami kind of thinks of Japanese society as having this pathological hatred of individualism, and that that is, like, the root of the Alm cult, that the Alm cult is, like, turned double pathologized, like, you know, they are going to completely divest from selfhood entirely, give all of their belongings up to some great leader, right? But I think Ikuhara's kind of way of looking at it is as a combination of, like all kinds of oppressive social forces that then anger with which gets channeled into um, uh, just a kind of blind, like uh, senseless destruction rather than any actual like thoughtful revolution, right? Um, And I think that that's really where Ikuhara, even though he's influenced by Murakami, diverges almost entirely. Let's move on to our next bit, which is symbols in the show. Like I mentioned earlier, Penguin Drum is a show that's very, very, like, driven through metaphor and symbol in order to, like, really start breaking down what happens in Penguin Drum. And even though it might seem weird to start here, uh, we're going to assume some sort of familiarity with what's going on. But we should talk about, like, the various symbols if you want to go through that, Tony and Mo. Um, there... It seems like every single, like, form of societal oppression has its kind of, like, its own symbol that it's represented with. I think the biggest symbol in the show, like, is the child broiler, right? It Which is, like, this really interesting kind of combination of things that, like, it both feels like it's supposed to represent some very specific social structures like so so the image of the child broiler is a bunch of children who are rendered into like these kind of faceless like what things that you would see on a billboard like being pushed down a conveyor belt until they're ground up into tiny little pieces and murdered basically um and what's interesting to me about that is i think it's both functioning as a representation of super specific social forces like um I think of the the um, school-to-prison pipeline, right, and, like, the incarceration of children. I think of the foster care system. I think of child homelessness. Um, and, I mean, and that is made very clear with, like, Himari, who is taken to the child broiler because her parents died, right? And so it becomes really clear that this is a metaphor for specifically what happens to children who are homeless because their parents die or and then are surrendered to the state. But I think it's also representative of other things. On the child broiler, I think, uh, you mentioned till they're, like, um, basically murdered, which is sort of true. I mean, it is true. I don't know. I mean, you, you literally get ground up. You don't live after that. I, I just... <laughs> I just... I, I kind of wanted to point out that there are, like... There are a couple of scenes in which characters ask directly what happens to children that go into their child broiler, and they ask, are they killed? And the answer is always, they are rendered invisible, which kind of reminded, like, you brought up houselessness, and I just sort of, when, when I heard that, I my mind just went to, like, basically any kind of, whether it's houselessness or, like, foster care system, or just, like, any sort of black box where society tends to put people so that we can pretend they don't exist. Prison is one such black box. Houselessness is another such black box. Um, foster care is like another is like another black box. Just like get, we don't want you anymore. We don't want to have to look at you anymore. 
uh, Penguin Number is a lot about abandonment. So, like, the ultimate expression of societal abandonment uh, would be the child boiler, I think. Be a good way to put it. Um, there are other symbols, too. The people who get saved from the child broiler are saved by being wanted. A lot of times it's like, oh, we put these kids in the foster care system because it's inhuman to, like, let them die. But there's no sense that anyone wants those kids. They're simply left to rot and become invisible with whoever will take them. But these kids in Penguin Drum who were at a point in the foster care system, for example, Himari, are saved because someone goes up and is like, no, you should come with me. I will choose you. This idea of being loved is, I think, a critical component there. There's so many different kinds of love in Penguin Drum. And the show really makes clear the kinds of love that are truly possessive and abusive. And this is kind of like a running theme in Ikuhara's show that shows, like, what is love that is really just feeding your own ego and desires and not really, like, actually willing to give anything to the other person? (laughs) (coughs) Rent a girlfriend. What? Rent a girlfriend? (laughs) Um, and and then the love that, like, is reciprocal is, like, this kind of, like, willing to commit to having kind of a life together, right? And, you know, the difference between what, uh, like, Ringo is trying to give to Kabuki, Tabuki, I keep calling him Kabuki because I just love teaching my kids about Kabuki theater, um, but I... I like what Ringo tries to give to Tabuki or what how Yuri treats Ringo or how Yuri's parents treated her it's always this like the kind of love that's like fetishizes the character who's being loved and manipulates them and I think that that I guess relates to another really important like symbol in the show which is you mentioned like this idea of boxes, right, Mo? Oh yeah, there there are actual boxes. <laughs> there are actual boxes in the show so much of the show is like built on boxes yeah like i mean like there's the boxes that go down the conveyor belts like that like the the the, the katakakura's kids his father literally works in a box factory doesn't he Mm. and also like when when the terrorists talk about like what's wrong with humanity they say that you know people twist themselves into their own little boxes and they can't like find their true potential and whatnot and the solution, of course, that the terrorist group provides is to destroy the boxes with people still in them. <laughs> you know, erase a couple pe- a couple thousand people. You know, no big, no biggie, no big. <laughs> um, we'll get into this at a point, but definitely a thing to be noted is the idea of how a lot of people so desperate for an answer to the world's ills will turn to like apocalypse fate. Um. I'm not going to roast Pesetis here, but I am going to roast Pesetis here. Fuck them. Uh, <laughs> uh, Pesetis like the like the branch of Trotskyism. Pesetism. <laughs> oh, gotcha. In, in a nutshell, Pesetism sort of believes that like capitalism will, by definition, create some sort of world-ending event. It used to be like nuclear hellfire, but modern Posadas are like, well, climate change, apparently pandemics. 
any number any number of things can just end all life on earth under capitalism and basically when that happens not if but when that happens um socialists will be able to organize around the crisis to sort of uh reach the stars talk to dolphins (laughs) other cool things under communism uh it's the big i think accelerationist idea of there's no way to fix the world other than ensuring its collapse and picking up the pieces in the aftermath which is very much what the kika group is doing yeah, and I, I think it is it, it, it is interesting to me because I, I there are like certain abolitionist groups that like the 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 key group always talks about destroying the world and like I, I have this very ambivalent rela- relationship like I mean with kind of this idea of world ending because there's certain abolitionist groups whose idea of like abolition is we must destroy the world because the world represents all of the ways all of the forms of racial capitalism and especially anti-blackness and oppression that, you know, um, cause harm every single day. Right. And, um, and so in the idea is by destroying the world, you destroy those things and it's worth destroying the world because that's the only way to rid it of these oppressive systems. And I, I'm kind of ambivalent about that because like most of those people tend to be like academics rather than organizers. And the organizers who I actually talk, like, not talk to, but, like, oh, I mean, I guess talk to, you know, the organizers who I actually have, like, spent time working with, they always, they always frame abolitionism as a dual project, right? It's, it's both a destruction of, it's a destruct, this is what Mariam Kaba says, she says it's, abolition is the destruction and divestment from death-creating institutions, and and the investment in giving of energy to life-creating institutions. It seems to me that the Kiku group is so stuck on the destruction of death-creating institutions and can't differentiate between death-creation and life-creating institutions. It's just like, we'll just destroy everything. I mean, they are, uh, they are described as like a curse, right? A curse that comes from like cycles of people who have been, um, who have been hurt by you know the world itself and who kind of want to hurt it back uh, in a sense there's a there's a line i think it's like either a second to last episode or last episode or something uh with the with the two black rabbits they come from this guy sanetoshi who is the closest thing the show has to being a big bat and we will talk about him in great depth he's he has got pink hair and he's apparently very hot he is very hot yes I think he's supposed to be hot. Like, like, like you see, see what his hair was doing that one time. <laughs> he's supposed to be hot because he's alluring. Because his promise of a solution to your problems is alluring. Because the role he fills in the story is, of course, to go to vulnerable people who need an answer, like Kamba looking for a way to keep his family together and find money for medicine for Himari or Kamba's parents who are looking for a solution to child's homelessness and give them an answer. But the answer he gives them is, of course, the destruction of everything and not something that will actually solve the problem while leaving people around. Right. So um, he has these two black rabbits, which are a metaphor for something. <laughs> like everything in the show, yes. Um. <laughs> right. They're rabbits because they propagate. And his curse propagates. Whoa! 
Wow. <laughs> they say something about how, like, something pretty explicitly about how they want to get back at, like, a world that's, like, hurt them. Um, and I kind of, I kind of latched onto that as, like, if you want to look at uh, Kiga Association as, like, the parallel to the terrorists that committed the sarin gas attack in 1995 Tokyo, sort of saying, like, that's how the terrorists, like, you know, like, that's how they get people, basically. Like, they, they get people who have been s- systemically wronged. And that's what, like, I think really makes it interesting is that the that idea of like vindictiveness i think i think iguhara like a through line through all of the antagonists in penguin drum is this kind of punitive idea of justice right so if sanatoshi is supposed to be the curse that afflicts the takakura siblings right the curse is kind of representative of this both the punishment for their parents' involvement in the Kiga group's attack, and then also pulling them back into the cycle so that they enact that same thing again, right? But what's interesting is that Tabuki imagines himself as being an agent of justice, right? He imagines himself as, like, I'm going to get vengeance on these terrible people who murdered my best friend. And this is kind of society's idea of justice, which is where I think an abolitionist reading of Penguin Drum is really interesting, right? I have a really interesting quote I think might have inspired that from Haruki Murakami's Underground. This is a quote from a medical worker who was tending to the wounded after the Tokyo Sarin gas attacks. Uh, She said in an interview with Murakami, of course society should severely punish this crime, especially when you consider the families of the deceased, there should be no getting off easy. What are these families supposed to do? But even if those criminals get the death penalty, does that solve anything in the end? Perhaps I'm oversensitive when it comes to human mortality, but it seems to me that however heavy the sentence, there is nothing you can say to those families. That's the quote. And what I find so interesting about it is that she completely contradicts herself. She says at the end, like, that punishing these people won't do anything to help anybody. And then, but she starts at the beginning just... But the first thing that she says is, of course, society should severely punish this crime, as if she's trying to preempt Murakami for critiquing her for what she's about to say. It's like she's so afraid of saying the loud part out loud, which is that punitive justice doesn't actually really serve people and it doesn't rehabilitate anybody. You punish the bad people and then the problem is solved. It just causes more harm, but she has to preface it by saying... Well, of course, we sh- of course, I believe in punitive justice. And I think that that is like a larger thread that, that Ikuhara is commenting on in Sanatoshi and in uh, Tabuki, right? Mm-hmm. And while we're on threads and while we're on, you know, punishing people for the sins of their forebears, we need to talk about, I think, one of the most important symbols in Penguin Drum, and that is the idea of fate. So constantly we see fate depicted as this train on a railroad um, and like happens and the way I have always understood fate in Penguin Drum is it is sort of this thing that was handed down to children that they had no control in. In this way it functions very similar to the way Penguin Drum describes curses. Of uh, the Takakuras have um, Sanetoshi's curse, and that curse, and it's not like you know, Shoma was like, "Yeah, go, mom and dad, commit a terrorism." Woo-hoo! Like that's not anything. Ringo, for example, has the fate of her older sister in the way she's compared often and expected to be a surrogate for Momoka. 
whereas the Takakura siblings have the fate of their parents who committed the terrorism. And in that same way, they are held accountable and they are punished for that, even though they didn't really have a say in that occurring. Um, and this ties a lot into the way it talks about uh, children and adults and like the options they have and the control they have over their lives. Uh, with Himari especially, there's this feeling of she's fated to die because she has a terminal illness brought about by various societal factors, including stuff like homelessness, uh, which exacerbates the problem, or poverty, which makes it harder for her to get medicine care. And all of these compound upon each other to create this overwhelming feeling of a fate or a future you can't fight. And that's where I wanted to start that. Yeah, and I think it's, like, really important to note that these are children, right? And, like, and not, and I think the show really tries to focus in on children and because children really do have no control over their lives, right? They can be shuffled around from one person to the other, from one family to another. They can't really support themselves, and I think that the show is trying to make a really specific argument about the specific societal abandonment of traumatized children. Like, with the concept of fate, and, like, I think a lot about, like, the way that fate is often depicted, the symbol through which fate is depicted is as trains. Like, you are on a train, it is being conducted by somebody else, and, you know, you can't just magically switch tracks of the train unless you, you know, you're Momoka. Um, but, but the point is that it's a track that you are on that will take you to a destination, the place of your destiny as, um, as the Princess of the Crystal, or Himari, Momoka, however you want to refer to her, says over and over and over again. Like, oftentimes, I, I train teachers in, the, in kind of abolitionist um, pedagogy and abolitionist teaching, and one of the big things that I try to help them to understand is the idea of children being on trajectories, right? I think a lot about, like, how certain adults describe children's lives to them is you are on track to college. You are on track to go to prison or to go to, to have something terrible happen. And I think the thing is that teachers think when they're saying that they are ascribing agency to the child they're talking to. They're saying, you can change the track that you're on if you just try hard enough, if you do the capitalist thing, if you magically undo anti-blackness. Yeah, of course, like magically undo uh, anti-blackness, you know, just like we punch the CEO of racism, right? All you gotta do. And, and But in reality, all they're doing is this reinforcing in the child the sense that the child already has that a lot of these forces that they're experiencing are completely out of their control, right? And that it is society's fault for systematically abandoning the children, right? And this is an idea that comes from a scholar named Subini Anama. Um, she wrote a book called Pedagogy of Pathologization. You can read it. It's phenomenal. One of my favorite books of all time. Mm -hmm. And to tie this back into Penguin Room, there's this very keen idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy at play. Kamba ends up becoming more like his father, the terrorist, largely because, you know, he has been systematically and socially outcast by society and thus forced into a position where the only way to have his needs met is to turn to terrorism. There's no sense, uh, like, sure, if he could find enough money to, like, have a house some other way, like, by working a regular job, sure, maybe, but, like, 
considering how everyone treats the Takakuras, that's not an option that's available to him. And so the show makes it clear that societal and systemic abandonment really just reinforces itself. I think the show does a really good job of kind of showcasing, well, not showcasing, but um, like making very clear the different ways that children are shuffled around on these tracks and put on specific tracks by society and then blamed. Um, I guess, should we talk a little bit about Himari? <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Himari first, and then I want to talk about Masako. Oh, I love... Okay, Masako is, like, one of my favorite things to talk about, so... <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk about Himari first, because I feel like that's a bit more of a close uh, comparison, and then we can talk about Masako, and again, that is... Well, it's also interesting because I think we could talk... I think it's interesting to talk about one and then the other because they have pretty much the exact opposite trajectories. <laughs> yeah, let's let's get into that. So let's talk about Himari. Himari is the adorable younger sister, and for most of the show, she's treated as the MacGuffin. Yep. <laughs> uh, she's, she's effectively damseled by everyone in her life. Um, and she feels useless, and she has to repress so much to feel loved, to not feel like a burden. And the show actively comments on this too, right? Like, like the the um, Sanatoshi comes, and he's like, he brings his medicine, and he says, "Think of this medicine as the princess kiss, the princess kiss to wake the sleeping princess," right? And then Kamba's constant refrain that he says over and over and over again to the point where. We'll get into this idea of jestic language, but it's almost like his catchphrase, right? Is, I must save Himari. <laughs> it's his mantra. It, his, his mantra is quite literally like, for Himari's sake, for Himari's sake, for Himari's sake. Doing all these things that she never asked him to do. Yes, it is very important to note that every single time he says, for Himari's sake, he has never once asked Himari what she wants. Nope. <laughs> And, and that makes her feel useless. Like It does. Yeah, in the context of like what she wanted to do. She wanted to become an idol, but that was taken away from her because of her illness, which sucks. And then one of the things she does very early in the show is we see her making scarves. And at first it feels like a slight one-off gag, because especially when she like brings up the topic of the scarves to her brothers, and they generally sort of like brush it off as though it's not important. But this hurts her deeply in an emotional sense because the scarves are like her passion. It is the thing she does. And for that also to be brushed off, it makes her feel really useless. And so when it turns out that the scarves she sent to her, you know, idol friends um, in Double H were like actually really meaningful and they really, 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 really appreciated getting scarves from her. That, like, is a very big deal for her because it makes her input, her agency, feel valuable. Uh, and this ties a lot into the way uh, Penguin Drum talks about kids, but, like, disabled kids in particular, of how, like, they have wills, they have agency, they have, they, they well, maybe not strictly agency because they're rarely permitted to act upon it, but they have will and desire, but those wills and desires are so rarely like acknowledged i'm reminded of a quote from one of my favorite nk jemison short stories so i think it's the story the white lady um i think no no the the red the red dirt witch red dirt witch about a white lady but one of the the 
a little girl kind of seeing another like girl who's been treated like an object, like an enslaved person, right? This girl says to the lady, she had power and then you took it from her. And I think that there is so much like insight in that into like part of what Penguin Drum is trying to say about these societal curses because we think about like the kind of power Himadi could have had if she had been able to fulfill her idol dreams. The episode that where she is trying to form her idol group with the other members is one of my favorite of the show. That episode is so powerful because it's it's the first real time that we get to see Himadi outside of this kind of overcompensating for feeling unloved space, right? Or feeling useless space, where she is doing things because she wants to do them for herself. And Sanatoshi shows her this memory, I think. Why does uh, why does Sanatoshi show her that memory? Of her wanting to be an idol. It is stuff that she could have had that she lost. Um, it further reinforces her powerlessness. And uh, once again, in a way similar to the way he reacts to Kanban, Kenzan, etc., is like he shows her a moment of weakness and in a way is sort of being like, I will offer you my gift. I will give you this back. You just have to like work with me. That explains so much because that that episode and that's the thing about Penguin Drum is I think that like it's so hard to figure out sometimes why certain memories go in certain places and why but I think the conclusion that we both came to is that the memories in Penguin Drum always serve as character beats. Yes. They always serve as moments where characters remember something because because they're either repressing it and they need to re-remember it to grow or because they're being mind tortured by a monster. <laughs> we'll get to this when we talk about hashtag best girl Masako. Well, let's talk about Masako. <laughs> let's talk about Masako because I think she she's a really interesting kind of um, uh, like mirror image of Himari's story. So when we first see Masako, we see her as someone incredibly possessive of Kanban-specific, doing everything she can to get him back. And we talked about this earlier, but her ideal of love as this sort of warped, possessive love. Masako's, um, what has one of my favorite beats in which the moment she remembers is that of her abusive grandfather. Um, her grandfather, as we see, is a hyper-capitalist, hyper-masculine, and just generally not a good person. So what we see him doing is he works in currency exchange, he, like, is a flagrant womanizer, all of those things. And Masako dreams of killing him. But what she sees, eventually, is that her grandfather destroys himself. He, in his, in his like, hyper-masculine tradition, is like, I'm gonna serve Fugu myself! And then he cuts it wrong and dies. He cuts specifically blowfish wrong. Yeah. Like, pufferfish wrong. And yeah. pufferfish, which is famously poisonous, if yeah. you do it wrong. And he still is like, I must do it myself, because individualism, right? Yeah. And, and again, this is, like, where we're seeing Ikuhara's, like, ideas about what is poisoning Japanese society really differ from Murakami's. Because Murakami is, like, you know, 
I don't think Murakami is placing the blame on like hyper capitalism, hyper individualism here. <laughs> Even though the grandfather isn't directly associated with the Keio group, it's heavily implied that his actions are what pushed Masako's father to join the Kiga group. And further, even beyond that, is once he dies, he starts to possess uh, Masako's younger brother, Mario, in that same sort of vein. And the implication here is that idea of like embracing that hyper-capitalist, hyper-masculine tradition that Masako had been doing until that point, one leads to your own destruction, two, it perpetuates itself. Like, she will eventually end up possessing someone else at that rate and, like, reproducing the same harm. And, of course, you know, what do we see at the beginning of the series but Masako literally having the exact same monologue as her grandfather, like, I I only have the best tea. She's sitting in her very she she is a represent she and her grandfather are a representation of the extremely wealthy to be clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And just she has essentially become her grandfather and what's so wonderful about that episode is that she's forced to remember, "Oh right, I hated people like I am currently, right?" Yeah. It's a very good beat. It's a very good moment. And it's the funniest episode in the show. Oh my god, it is hilarious. Mr. It's... President! <laughs> watch out! And I love that they got an English voice actor for that. Or like an American-sounding voice actor. Not So it didn't sound... It just sounded like somebody from like... Just an American show just plopped into Penguin Drum. And I loved it. <laughs> Our uh, discussion of Masako leads very cleanly into uh, her final speech, which ties into this idea of beautiful coffins and beautiful boxes. Um, And as we haven't said as much, but if you've seen Penguin Drum, you know that there's so much box imagery. We talked a little bit about it. Kenzan worked in a box factory. Uh, Shoma and Kamba end up in cages. Sanita, she claims to want to destroy boxes. So let's talk a bit about uh, Masako's final speech. Yeah, so what's I? Uh, it's probably one of my absolute favorite moments in the whole anime. <laughs> um, just I, I know I just have all I have a lot of favorite moments in this anime. Um, but uh, what's so interesting to me is that she she makes this like grand statement about how um she felt trapped by her grandfather's capitalist bullcrap. But then when her father, she looked really up to her father for uh, kind of abandoning being super wealthy and upper class to join this, the Kiga group, right? But then she gradually came to realize that that was just uh, what she called a beautiful coffin. I I almost think of it as a way that she's describing a recuperation of resistance to capitalism, right? Would you apply the term false consciousness to it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, can you just explain that term a little bit, false consciousness? Yeah, sure. Um, So, essentially, uh, so the term class consciousness kind of refers to the uh, general idea that, like, a member of the proletariat, so in capitalism there two main antagonistic classes, proletarian and the bourgeoisie. Um, the bourgeoisie owns the means of production, they own the stuff you use to make things, and the proletariat owns nothing but the work that they can provide for um, the bourgeoisie, right? 
So a member of the proletariat who is class conscious is someone who understands their class position. They understand that they are part of a group of people who are being exploited, and they understand um, and they have some desire to end this sort of exploitation. Um, false consciousness is what happens when media or when like other or like education or other things um, that are controlled by the bourgeoisie are like meant to take that natural feeling of discontent that isn't quite yet class consciousness and turn it to something that is not productive, that does not actually change things. So uh, like a really good example of this is like Tucker Carlson and like other kind of like right wing populists. Um, they they know that you're poor and they know that you don't like being poor and they know that you know that elites kind of run the economy and they run the government and that they and that um, you're not being prioritized in any decision that the state makes. But they take that feeling and they make you mad at immigrants. They make you mad at people with college degrees. They make you mad at Jews if they're especially Nazi, you know, <laughs> things like that. And so when I say like the Kiga group represents false consciousness, um, what it represents is a group of people who take people who understand that capitalism, that the child broiler, like we talked about, are messed up and they should stop. But then they turn that and they say, okay, blow up a bunch of people instead of doing something useful, <laughs> like blowing up an empty government building. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, you, but you understand my grip. I mean, my, my chest. Right, right, right. Because, like, up until then, they had, like, you know, taken in. Kanba, who was the child of another Kika group member, right? So it was, like, all still within this kind of, like, singular entity. But, like, the only act that's actually taking a child who is about to be broiled is when Shoma comes and, like, tries to save Himari from the child broiler, right? It really go shows to me the ineffectual, like, nature of the Kika group. And and what do they end up doing? So so they talk all about, like, destroying the child broiler, but then what? how do... How does Shoma end up, you know? Shoma ends up in a box, right? Like, he is being neglected by Kenzan and Shami. Like, it seems really clear that it's very hard for me to interpret the, the box imagery in the final episode as anything other than them being so ensconced in this false consciousness that they completely neglect their own child. I, I don't think he expresses any real interest in fixing the world. It's always his parents who are like, um, the, this world that abandons children is rotten and must change. And Kamba's like, yeah, and you're giving me money for Himari too. That's cool. <laughs> like basically every scene with them in it, it goes more or less that way. And I wonder like, no, don't, don't board the train of destiny. He's like, yeah, but I, I got to save Himari. And it's like, but what about the world? Himari, <laughs> listen, <laughs> he, he knows what he wants. He's got priorities. Yeah. And I think that like, that's, I think, a difference between, like, Kanba and, um, like, Kanba's parents. Although, it, like, becomes a little unclear at the end whether Kanba actually believes that destroying the world will save anybody <laughs> other than Himari. <laughs> and I think that's, like, exactly the lens to look at, like, what Sanitoshi is doing and what the Kiga group is doing. Of It's perpetuating this false consciousness, um, uh in large part like by preying off of desperation of creating a narrative to like make sense of the pain while uh you know pushing away from the actual exploitation you're f they're facing it's like oh it's just the world that's rotten not like 
you know, the fact that the child brother exists. And um, Tony, I think you brought a very interesting and important moment to my attention when you pointed out that, you know, Kenzan and Chiemi with their false consciousness, they have this whole idea of like ending homelessness by ending the world. But it's Shoma who actually goes and like does a productive thing in finding Himari. Nope. <laughs> but I think that that's the power, though. That's the beautiful coffin, right? That's that's what the, the false consciousness. It is it is an incredibly seductive narrative that we can just, you know, blow up our problems. We can just punch the CEO of, of yeah. evil, right? <laughs> and we mentioned this earlier with Kamba as well. But this idea of Kamba, the, every doctor tells Kamba and Shoba that Himari is doomed. But Sanitoshi says, I can save her. You just have to blow up a bunch of people. And how is Kamba not going to take that? That is sort of this idea of like the desperation fueled by knowing you're fucked, but not like having access to like the right theory or the right framework to make sense of how to unfuck yourself. So the first person who says, here's how you unfuck yourself, you just kill a bunch of people. Like, people will ingrain that into their heads. And I feel like that's a big part of what Penguin Drum is trying to point out. I think that, like, um, so I, I just want to, like, before we move on from this idea of, like, false consciousness and, like, how the Kiga group kind of, or Sanatoshi manipulates people, I, I just wanted to kind of, like, call your attention to this interesting quote, another interesting quote from Murakami's Underground, which, again, shows the kind of difference between how Murakami... Uh, Murakami is describing false consciousness, but I don't think he realizes he's describing false consciousness, right? Um, so Murakami is saying, like, nobody... Without a proper ego, nobody can create a personal narrative. Everybody needs a personal narrative. Any, And without that, any more than you can drive a car without an engine or cast a shadow without a physical object, you can't live. And he describes how... At this point, you need a new narrative from the person to whom you have entrusted your ego. So like Sanatoshi, right? You've handed over the real thing, so what comes back is a shadow. At once your ego has emerged with another ego, your narrative will necessarily take on the narrative created by that ego. Just what kind of narrative? What kind of narrative? Um, it needn't be anything particularly fancy, nothing complicated or refined. You ne don't need to have literary ambitions. In fact, the sketchier and simpler the better. Junk, a leftover rehash will do. Anyways, most people are tired of complex multi-layered stories. They are a potential letdown. It is precisely because people can't find any fixed point within their own multi-layered schemes that they are tossing aside their own self-identity. And what I find so interesting about this quote is that Murakami goes from, like, this interesting interrogation of, like, how we create these super simple narratives of how to fix society that mislead people and, like distract from the real problem of capitalism and then he engages in his own <laughs> false consciousness of it it's just a problem with people tossing aside their self-identity and i'm like no you're so close <laughs> and i think that's where where ikuhara's intervention is super interesting in like being like no actually this is a problem this is this is false consciousness this is people taking hatred of capitalism and turning it into something else rather than people just taking hatred of themselves right <laughs> it's really interesting and like the push and pull between the two creators i think it's really important to understanding the show ikuhara references uh murakami at multiple points in the show so 
uh, yeah, it's it's a very I think underground is a very important text to understanding what Ikuhara was ra- reacting against in the narrative of the sarin gas attacks. My my one thing that I also want to talk about is how a lot of our protagonists, uh, particularly as we see in that last episode with Shoma and Kamba sharing an apple or Shoma and Himari sharing an apple, is how much of uh, Ikuhara's solution to this evil is built upon this principle of just like I'm gonna call it mutual aid because I think I can call it that of like supporting each other and like you know rather than one of them surviving they create the scenario where they both survive and they're both there for each other um I messaged Mo a while back of this like weird line I had inspired by this of like you know one person can't save everyone but like five people can all save each other and i feel like that's a lot of how what ends up happening in penguin drama with the exception of momoka who is even though she like has jesus like powers she's not a savior she's a kid and she can only do so much but when it comes to people like kamba and shoba they all have to like rely on each other they have to even rely on himari for like something as simple as like emotional support or a reason to keep going momoka is a victim as much of any other child in this show she didn't ask to 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 die to save everybody right that was put upon her like she did she wasn't born to die to save everybody and yet she doesn't have anybody to support her in the way that she needs to be supportive it's almost like steven in steven universe future or something you know (laughs) (laughs) Oh, listen, I'm so glad that boy got therapy. Everyone give it up for the best shit. Steven from Steven Universe Future uh, and therapy. <laughs> and yet everybody fetishizes, like, Momoka over and over again. They're like, she's the savior of the world. She is Jesus. She was so perfect. She was the only one that gave my life meaning. Okay, listen. Chill. <laughs> chill. Chill. Relax. Okay. Yeah. And I feel like one of the things I like is because we do see a lot of this. I'm going to look at every, sh- I'm going to look at every shitty isekai and say like, we do see so many stories where we have this perfect savior with the magical powers to fix the world. And here, I think in Penguin Dome specifically, Ikuhara is subverting that and pointing out that one, she's a fucking kid. She's not a savior. And two, the way in which these quote-unquote awesome people are fetishized as the answer to the problem. (laughs) Yuri was a choice. The show made made that choice with Yuri. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, it kind of leads a lot of characters to do things that are bad. (laughs) Um, Side-eyes Yuri. (laughs) Yuri! Increasingly concerned with Yuri tries to forget about yuri i really want to like very briefly like talk about why that scene sucks and it's terrible um it's very simply because it happens and is then forgotten about and sort of brushed aside right ringo like ringo got fucking assaulted and she has no lasting trauma yuri doesn't even really apologize for like being a complete shit it's not okay and to be honest it really like undermines all the other stories that okay so to to be clear level of priorities um depicting sexual assault in a way that is irresponsible is the first priority um but also 
a, a couple notches lower than that is how bad it was for writing. Because I remember when I got to that episode, I invested Raghava and I was like, why does Yuri keep complaining that the world doesn't understand her because she's gay? The world doesn't understand her because she's a fucking rapist. <laughs> right. And I don't understand her either. Right. And it's like, well, that's clearly like not like her story is actually it's about like her sexuality. It's about like the fact that she was abused as a child. Um, it's not about her attacking other people. Um, and the fact that like we're introduced to that first and then we get the other stuff about Yuri. It's just like uh, it's really hard to recover uh, a character from um, that level of irresponsibility. And then her queerness is treated as a joke. Like, the, 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 the final scene with Yuri, one of the final scenes with Yuri, her lover that she dumped, like, very casually comes in and tries to murder, and tries to murder Tabuki, just like... Yeah, and, th- and then she just leaves. <laughs> she just leaves. She stabs and leaves. <laughs> and, like, that's it. And that's it. And it's like, well, you did that. Okay, show. <laughs> I, I, I spoke about this to Tony in that I don't think it's vestigial in that it's not completely useless, but you could very easily cut it. And that's the problem. If it needed more time to really explore it, and it didn't get that time. Also, um, not to speak over others and things, but like, isn't, um, isn't it kind of a trope that like, so we have like a character that's been like like abused physically and probably sexually as a child and then they grew up to be like both queer and also like abusive themselves and isn't that like in and of itself like kind of a dangerous trope Oh yeah it's a super shitty trope I mean the the, the predatory lesbian yes <laughs> that's everywhere Yeah so I I just I wanted to make sure we didn't like gloss over it yeah, and I think for me, the thing that, like, I, I often kind of think about, like, Ikuhara shows as being, like, building upon the the groundwork that each one laid, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think about Yorikuma Arashi, which is, like, Ikuhara's big, like, angry scream at how lesbians are depicted in anime. Yorikuma Arashi has a predatory lesbian that it deconstructs to hell. And it, like, really goes into, like, what made it that way and why it's so harmful. With Yuri, I feel like it sort of gestures in the general direction, but it doesn't explore it in enough detail for that to matter. I know Ikuhara means well, and I know he has done better than this, but this was still shit. Yeah, Yurikuma Arashi, like, literally represents all the different censors and all the different kind of like it basically says you're only allowed to depict lesbians if they're predators or if they're so completely innocent that nothing wrong could ever happen with them and it reminds me a little bit honestly i i used to joke with a friend about this it feels like ikuhara is critiquing himself in his depiction of momoka and of yuri like you're only allowed to have Momokas and Yuris in anime lesbians. And that's why I tr- that's why I'm like a little bit more okay with what Penguin Drum did because it almost feels like Yuhara apologized for it <laughs> in his later shows. No, that's that's definitely that's definitely a mood. It, it it definitely happens with some creators. Like I wrote a I wrote a whole thing about SAO. So <laughs> 
I have an idea for how we can close out. I was thinking that we could, like, just have, like, a flash round of, like, our interpretations of the different kind of catchphrases that each character has. I think that each character's catchphrase has, like, a very deep meaning, and I want to just kind of very quickly go through each of those meanings. <laughs> Sanatoshi's catchphrase is overwhelming, isn't it? Quick interpretation. I, I think it's, like, because usually when he says overwhelming, isn't it? Um, the character's like, yeah, I do feel overwhelmed. Tell me what to do about it, right? And he, like, goes into some other some other thing, like, oh, you want to do a terrorism, kid? <laughs> hey, kid, you want to do a terrorism? Something like that. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's his, like, thing. It's like he really loves, like, seeing overwhelming, terrible things happen so that he can swoop in and be like, and save the day, or, like, you know... Um, Masako, this must be crushed at once. Uh, capitalist acquisition. Yeah, it was, it was something her dad said, so it's it's kind of a mentality. That, I mean, her granddad said, so it was a, a, a mentality that she learned from growing up with a CEO and then becoming a CEO. Yeah, just like, crush everybody so that you can it's like i must stomp on somebody else's face so that my face doesn't get stomped on um i hate or love fate shoma and ringo i argued that this was reflective of their characters reflections towards their legacy the takakura siblings who inherit the fate or legacy or curse of kenzan and chiemi's actions hate fate they don't want to be like that whereas uh, Ringo, who inherits Momoka's legacy, obviously, like, loves fate, because that's, like, good. Her legacy is good. Quote-unquote good. At least at first, so. I also think it's, like, that's Ringo, it. like, lying to herself over and over and over again. Yeah. Oh, oh my god, we barely got to get into it. Um, But that whole idea, there's a whole sub-theme about how Ringo trying to be, like, perfect Jesus figure Momoka, who wasn't even Jesus herself is, like, super self-destructive. It's, like, literally killing her. And it's not just killing her, it's hurting other people. Shall we begin the survival strategy? What does this mean? Oh my god. This is, like, the thesis of the show. <laughs> yes. With how often it is said. I argue that it is, of course, that the way for humanity to survive is to bounce together. I think that's a reading that has a lot of like uh, weight behind it. Uh, Crystal Girl says, shall we begin the survival strategy? Get the penguin drum. And the penguin drum turns out to be uh, caring about each other. The penguin drum was the friends we made along the way. I thought it was the apple. <laughs> Maybe I took that too literally. She was like, this is the penguin drum. And I was like, oh, it was the apple. Okay. <laughs> and I did not do any interrogation. <laughs> The apple was the thing that Shoma and Kamba and Shoma and Himari shared to be alive. So definitely, I think when we say the survival strategy is sharing with others. Finally, uh, for Himari's sake, I will save Himari. This is the blindfold Kamba puts on. I use the word blindfold very specifically in that by saying it is for Himari's sake, he neglects interrogating the weight of his actions. Yeah, I think it's how he justifies all of his nonsense, honestly. Um, and, and I think that this also ties into kind of the, the that, that the idea of the survival strategy, right? The survival tactic. Because it 
like, that's also said by the Kiga group right before they do their murderous thing, but it's really clear that's not a survival tactic, right? Or it, they just convinced themselves it is. But they maybe they were brought into the group as a survival tactic. And I think that that's, like, a large part of, like, what brings people into the Kiku group is that Sanatoshi is going to help them survive. That cannot be overstated. Just that manipulativeness of that. Um, I guess the last one, um, Fabulous Max. We will close out with Fabulous Max. Why does Yuri keep saying Fabulous Max? (laughs) I I thought that's just orgasm. That's just when you come, right? Like, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like some, it's like nowadays, uh, you know, uh, us, us Zoomers and, uh, millennials, we say poggers. But if you respect the classics, <laughs> if you respect the. <laughs> it's poggers? Is that the. Okay, I guess that's the take. It's poggers. <laughs> Fabulous Max is poggers. You heard it here first. There we go. This is the, the exact sort of high-end um, academic uh, leftist analysis that our, our brave CWT listeners are, are looking for. <laughs> um, with that being said, uh, I'm Raghava. The pronouns are anything other than he or she, and I say poggers. I'm Ovek, he, him. I also say poggers unironically. Also pog, weird champ, and uh, pog champ. <laughs> I'm spicing it up. I am Tony. Um, my pronouns are any pronouns, and I my children say "pockers" in the chat all the time, and I say it too, in solidarity with my children. That just means you're a good teacher. <laughs> None of us are fabulous, Max people. Because we're not we're not bougie like Yuri is. She's bougie, bougie. That's She's bougie, true. Bougie. Okay. All right. Take care, y'all. In the following segment, we're talking about Guilty Crown, an explicitly fascist and ableist text um, that will dehumanize you. Um, This was an incredibly difficult anime to watch. It made um, several of us cry because of how much it hates people. So if you're not really up for just like naked and disgusting fascism and ableism maybe you know maybe skip this one maybe maybe this is not this is not the segment to listen to however you should still check out nightmare alpha and all the stuff he's doing in the description of wherever you're listening to this enjoy Hello, hello, welcome to another episode of Critical Weed Theory. I'm here with Raghavan. Hello, I exist. And our guest, uh, Nightmare Alpha, how are you doing? Hi, um, I'm doing fine right about now. Um, if you want to introduce yourself, who you are, what you do. Uh, I'm Nightmare Alpha, I'm uh, like, I don't I don't know what I'm am at these points. Uh, it's a little existential. I don't know. It's, 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 no, not necessarily existential. I just don't know what I'm doing on the internet. Like, I do sometimes videos, or at least I did a long time ago. I sometimes do streaming. 
uh, I read a lot of books. I, I do a lot of stuff. I don't know. I want to get back into video production, but I think like I save this for like a year or so. And uh, I don't know. But I, I'm now here. Like, if you want, you can call me a professional podcaster because that's what I have done for a long time. It just don't get paid for it usually. No. Okay. I, I know we, we kind of met over a shared appreciation of Kevin Skittles. So, and I'm happy yeah. that this has happened. Um, it's yeah, been I'm really good. great talking to you in the last couple months and things like that. I mean, I'm always, it's always uh, nice that people appreciate you. Mm hmm. So, so brass tacks. Let's get down to it. Um, you watched Guilty Crown, and I've also watched Guilty Crown. I watched it on like 0.25 speed in an entire afternoon in a blitz of um, scarring, and quite awfully, some of the worst anime I think I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm I'm honestly like not sure if blitzing through it is better than experiencing it over a long time, but I think that's uh, that your mileage may vary on that one. I think there's 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 two camps, right? Has not seen Guilty Crown, you know, li quality of life infinitely better. Um, things are actually uh, looking up for those people, and then there's that. So that's like Ragava because I haven't seen it. I've seen a bit of it. I've seen enough of it to like participate in this conversation. I have not come in unarmed. Never mind. Okay, so we're we're all in the um, quality of life is uh, worsened. Outcomes are worsened because we have seen guilty crap. <laughs> I mean, it has been literally my white whale for a long time. We are going to get into it. Full spoilers. I, I there should have already been a spoiler warning at the beginning but we're not holding anything back because it's not really worth watching or caring about not really well evidently we care enough about it to make a podcast episode about it but i understand what you mean yeah, yeah. let's uh nightmare alpha do you want to start with a brief plot summary before we get into why it's bad it's a bit it's I mean, okay, it's a little bit complicated because the story is, is kind of inconsistent and getting into all little details is a bit weird, but let's get the let's get the basics done. So the story plays in the future where after a pandemic, relatable, uh, apparently Japan has been put under permanent quarantine by the United Nations to not spread this disease which turns people apparently into crystals. And... Um, and 10 years after that, we find our story where um, the, the, their teenage boy gets into an altercation with terrorists trying to fight the government over something. They acquire a bioweapon. In the process, the main character gets, let's say, uh, exposed to the bioweapon and develops the ability to draw out people's void, which is basically like drawing out somebody's heart slash soul and utilizing it as a reality-breaking weapon, basically. And the main character gets into that situation where he has to help the terrorists out, is not sure where he wants to go. It's a little bit coaxed into. There's, uh, it's... It goes on for a while, and uh, yeah, that's basically the plot. It's basically how how a main character interacts with the group of terrorists that he becomes a part of. But I think there's a little bit more to it. It's just that getting into plot details makes this uncomfortably complicated 
because it's it's changing a lot throughout the story what it wants to be but yeah i don't know if there's anything more to add to that no that's um probably a really good place to start yeah i mean i think i think the tldr is is uh is uh teenager fights fights uh oppressive government by uh utilizing superpowers gained from people's hearts with terrorism yeah um so we here at critical beat theory we are very much against direct action against uh, uh to oppose tyrannical governments uh under certain circumstances the, the one mainly is uh, you're not a fucking uh fascist right yeah <laughs> so yeah <laughs> guilty crown um breaks the one rule it breaks the one rule set you, you have an oppressive government you say you want to get rid of it um but unfortunately it is not doing so uh out of a concern for for liberation it is doing so out of an obsession with survival of the fittest and natural selection and i think that's where um the problems begin to start yeah basically uh Besides the fact that the motivations of the characters are a little bit hard to find, uh, it definitely plays into many of these aspects uh, of the survival of the fittest, uh, of a idea of merit. It's a bit weird to to go into there, but it's it's just hmm, I don't know. It's a bit complicated to grasp at all, but it's a it's a very I mean, if you want to have an exploration of fascism, it's a it's a very good example of this, I think. Like, you will not find a better example of it in anime, I think, or at least I have not experienced one of these. Uh, so from that perspective, it could be interesting. But yeah, hmm, don't really know how to go into that. Um, we'll take one step at a time. Yeah. Raghava, we talked a, a little bit about the kind of like obvious like fat telltale fascist signs that we see in guilty crown uh, for example it's like obsession with like strong men and good times uh, maybe you want to go into that i mean i think you explained it pretty well when you were talking about it so and you brought it up in the first place so there's basically this um a fascist meme which apparently comes from a sci-fi novel uh, because fascists do not read so the joke is that i don't read but like fascists they like negative read okay but essentially the quote it goes something like hard times create strong men strong men create good times good times create weak men and weak men create hard times and so it essentially argues that like socio-political systems like democracy or authoritarianism and things like that um there aren't things that you can like control right like, we can have a democracy, we can have, like, anarcho-communism with, like, we, like, <laughs> fully automated luxury gay space communism. Well, not, not gay, because they're fascists. Um, but fully automated luxury space communism. We can have all of that. Well, also not communism, then, because they're fascists. Yeah, not, not fascists, but, okay. Let, let me, let me rephrase. We can have the utopia, but we can only have the utopia when there's no threats to civilization. Um, when there are threats to civilization, when there's an emergency, when there are people who need to be removed, you know, because they're weak or they're subversive or something like that, we can't do democracy. We have to let strong people lead us um, to victory. Democracy is for when the strong people, is for after when the strong people win. 
this of course ties into another i think really important fascist concept of the perpetual war of one of the key ways fascism justifies itself is by the idea that there is always a threat so the moment in which strong people are no longer necessary and in which we can stop doing fascism never comes because there is always a threat outside or within our borders exactly and guilty crown is it's literally about that Um, there's an entire section i know maybe nightmare you want to get into this more for example there's there's this scene where the student body president is like trying to have like a discussion about what the students think they should do and they're getting like upset and agitated because um uh, the un has basically quarantined their entire block and cut them off from the outside world because of the pandemic or whatever um and the characters say like like they say something like well you know uh, she's having integrity but that makes her weak and then one of the characters says something like well what's wrong with being democratic and there's like well nothing in peacetime but we're at war <laughs> so we can't do it um it's very interesting in that situation because they complain about the fact that she's not willing to do anything she's like instructed to wait she has kind of, she, the, the student council president has some connections to the outside world she wants to wait for that help to arrive basically and everybody is confused because she's basically not doing anything uh what what they think and the irony is that after that they they decide to elect the main character in basically like i mean it's not necessarily a vote at that point it's basically a demonstration it's not an election it's a i nay sort of thing it's just not really an election at that point but the funny thing about this is that after that the main character also doesn't do anything like the order has changed but the goal is still basically the same they're still not going out here they're still stuck in that situation even though they they could try to get out and it's just like i don't know what you want to tell me with that show but okay it's just the idea that just replacing replacing a weak leader with a strong leader already makes the situation better which i think is in this case not because you know before that the people were all alive after that the people actually start dying right there's the idea that like only strong leaders can make the decisions that need the harsh decisions that need to be made um they will risk being unpopular if it means saving their people right but that that's not really the case like it's it's not really saving at all in the in the concept of a show it's just making everything worse and uh, it also brings up you know like limited resources and and stuff like that and it's, it's very it's very fatalistic in its approach that there isn't enough for everybody and therefore of course the weak need to serve the strong because you know you have to pull your weight even though that's complete ro- completely wrong you know like if we can't survive all what what do we gain from that you know and then that's kind of where this, this show kind of drifts into 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 a void of of what actually to do because i don't know if the show actually knows what it did right there so certainly the people who watch it and review it seem not to know what it does <laughs> no no and not at all we've checked a few one we spoke about this in our darwin's game episode um and it, it's a very common trope of fascists to assert this whole sort of law of the jungle we're just animals you know we we're just gonna compete be at each other's throats and you know gotta compete and only the strong survive as though 
that's how it works in the jungle when in fact that's not even close to how this works in the jungle yeah come on no like animals fucking care for their sick it's not that hard it's not that complicated it's literally not how it works in the jungle and it's also not how it works in real life (laughs) even like humans in actual times of crisis they come together and they help each other like the idea that like uh if there was no like government and there if there was no like in times of crisis people compete and they start killing each other is like the conception of what like an upper middle class person thinks will happen because that's how they treat everyone else right (laughs) and the only reason they're not doing worse is because the rules say so like poor people like people in the communities they like they like organize they like they help each other because they're fucked and they realize they know what it's like to be fucked wait (laughs) (laughs) you get what i mean um yeah speaking of that that's a really good segue into talking a little bit more about how the show sees survival of the fittest um so one of the ways we know that the show is going to be terrible is because we're introduced to um d1 and uh ghq which um, if you don't know, GHQ was also the name of um, the occupying forces uh, during U.S.-occupied Japan. But in this case, they stand for the yeah. UN and uh, the World Health Organization. So GHQ, um, they're like oppressing people, they're killing people um, who they say have the virus, even though they might not have it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so the freedom fighters come on the scene, and the freedom fighters, they talk about natural selection a lot, which is a little bit confusing. Because that's not what natural selection means at all. Yeah, it's just not what it means. And they talk about how they will not allow the UN and GHQ to naturally to, to, to select out like the Japanese people. And this is where we get into the weird nationalism, I guess. I suppose so. Because that's, that's always there. Like When I watched this for the first time uh, a few years back, these nationalistic undertones were consistently there. And I think this is... This is actually where, where a lot of people probably draw draw the Code Geass connection there because this seems to be like like an uh, a concept of occupying elements. Like there's there's still this strong movement of nationalism in Japan specifically where they talk about that they're technically still under American occupation, that it never ended, and that they need to uh, control their country again. And this is kind of what the show also talks about, but in a more well at least presented as a more justified action and we even see japanese nationalists interacting with them ironically they're rich business people so i mean they're on brand i guess right guilty crown it it kind of the the premise of the show from the from the beginning where we meet um our main character shu um and he we learn he can take things out of people's hearts all the way out to the very ends where there's lots of flashing lights and mm-hmm. confusing noises coming out of the characters' mouths <laughs> that seem like sentences, but, you know, don't actually make any logical sense whatsoever. How do I even describe it? Remember, like, towards the end? Like, when... So, like, the brother... We thought he died. Guy, right? So we thought Guy died. But he comes back. And he comes back as evil. And he decides to go along with um, the sister who's like possessed by the virus i'm surprised i'm getting it right this far right and like guy he like takes over a faction of ghq to try and like 
and the world with the understanding that if he tries to genocide all of humanity and like naturally select them out then his brother Shu will stop him and Shu's all like humanity is too strong to be erased or whatever um yeah and that's basically see i'm trying to explain it i i i hope just by explaining it it doesn't make any sense <laughs> and it's like I, I i could even tell you what the final twist is where it's like they confront each other and they argue about yeah the only reason to get out of a cycle is just just to die at the same time and i'm like what are you talking about what what is this what's happening here <laughs> as i often say it's 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 getting very very confusing towards the end like like the theory that when we watched this on the critical weep theory discord we we watched that together and we came to the sweeping conclusion that this show was probably rushed into production nobody really know where it was going because it was going in all directions at the same time and never really ending up anywhere other than than in the horror sh in the horror zone like it's like and it's very clear that they had no idea what they were doing but ironically this this incoherency is perfectly suited for an exploration of fascism because fascism also is an incoherent ideology which often doesn't make sense so again extra points for being on theme <laughs> well if you do fascism you'll inherently do something that is um, self-contradictory and yeah. incoherent so <laughs> but but this goes probably a step beyond that so yeah so i wanted to um this is all um, really good uh, i wanted to just point out um that uh, the whole thing that guilty ground does with survival of fittest is like literally how fascists think um they they, they kind of view civilizations mm -hmm. as like an evolutionary struggle right in which there are times in which one civilization will challenge another civilization like to a fight or whatever and we have to show that we are stronger than them right so this is what um a lot of like modern fascists do with like uh, uh, uh muslims and like the the migration crisis that was in 2015 and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. uh where they'll basically say we're at like a we're in like a thousand year long war with islam or whatever and and we need to show that we are stronger than than the than 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 the barbarians to our south. Otherwise, we will be replaced by them. And of course, which will lead, you know, to the great replacement, like conspiracy theory, all that sort of stuff. It is teaching you when you watch Guilty Crown. It is teaching you like the foundations of fascist thought. And it's it also plays into that with 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 a story about about the value of a character and the strength especially because this is one of the things that it does from a from a basically very beginning about the show how basically quantifies the the abilities of people and how valuable they are to the cause and and how strong they are and this gets especially towards uh, the second half a lot stronger where they literally have a device that measures the strength of these these uh, of of a, of a person's void thereby you know how how strong this is no matter if it's actually logical or not because you know like uh some of these elements are uh, could be 
potentially like amazing tools to like combat the enemy but they don't really think about that after that just just organizing a whole society basically after the idea that if you're strong you're valuable if you're weak you're not and they're putting the people with these weaknesses directly into contrast to each other directly into harm's way and i think um i mean we could argue about the idea how how, how correct this is or how wrong it is like specifically like how society especially the society we live in is often built on the backs of people being oppressed the, the problem that i have is that it tries to justify that and i don't really understand this the main idea being that when we have texts that are like explicitly fascist like guilty crown it is uh especially important to like bring up how the I guess like you could call them like plot and theme inconsistencies of the show are like they match the 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 real life inconsistencies of like actual dickheads who we hate. Uh real quick, Raghava, you um you wanted to bring up uh, Legends of Galactic Heroes and how it actually brings up like the reasons why fascism wouldn't work in its narrative as compared to Guilty Crown. Um as, as we mentioned earlier, um, Guilty Crown acts with this ideology that fascism is the only system that works in times of crisis. And I think if you bother to analyze that for even half a moment, it kind of becomes clear that that's actually quite the opposite of true. Because when you pin everything on one person and that person dies, everything falls apart. Uh, historically, this has been true uh, if we look at uh, people like, for example, Alexander the Great. Uh, he had a big empire, then he died, everything fell apart. And that's because the empire was, for the most part, just Alexander the Great. Not even that Galactic Heroes is an anime in which one of the protagonists, Yang Wenli, argues this very effectively of he will take a democracy over a quote-unquote benevolent dictatorship because the benevolent dictatorship only lasts as long as the quote-unquote benevolent dictator, insofar as only as long as they are benevolent, and only as long as they're alive. The moment they die, they are replaced, and, you know, because you put all your eggs in one basket, everything falls to shit immediately. There's even actually, in, in Guilty Crown, there's even a scene where they talk about how Shu, after he becomes fascist dictator of the school, which is a sentence I'll never get tired of saying, um, after he comes fascist dictator to school, um, all his fascist like little foot soldiers are like, we need to keep you safe and away from the pandemic, and we need to make sure that you get first access to the vaccine, because if you die, we all die. And I'm like, isn't this why we shouldn't do fascism? <laughs> isn't this why we should like spread out decision-making and capacity so that it, w killing one person out of an incredibly like infectious disease doesn't do anything it's also very interesting that especially towards the second half of a show seemingly everybody forgets that for the longest part of a show these superpowers these white powers were not the main asset they were essential to the to the strategies to succeed but suddenly everybody else forgot the the infiltration the the the, the whole operation skills the the uh, the whole the whole shebang of real skills were completely undermined and ignored in favor of this new superpower because it suddenly became like an arms race and it's just that's so weird to me like as as if you pin it on something arbitrary which might not even be permanent like nobody really knows what voids are in this world but they know that it probably will not last like, they make this statement in the show that you can only use this until you're, like, 
uh, as long as you're not not 18 years old, like only 17 year olds or all below, get to use this power. And I'm like, how do you how do you deal with that? Like, sure, everybody is reliant on 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 Shu to get this power out, but these people have skills beyond that on their own which they could use. I mean. The terrorists have succeeded in many of their actions before that, even without that power, you know. So, so it's a it's a bit arbitrary to pin it on that specific aspect and how it basically takes over the second half of the show to the point where even some of the characters don't even get, you know, closure in their in their respective rivalries, which is so weird to me. I don't know, but but it kind of feels like that they center this so strongly on one individual on one good guy solving the problems of everybody even though that's not how this necessarily works and that sometimes this specific decision making can actually also go wrong like even if you have the best of intentions you can do terrible things as an individual leader because you might not have the foresight to to view other situations that's one of the reasons why democracy is is better right or you might not like understand the the actual conditions of the people who are like living through a specific situation you were talking about dune and how it also you can put it in conversation guilty crown somewhere in, in a sense like dune is centered around the question of absolute power and how negative this can be when you pin all of your uh, goals, all of your ambitions onto one person, give them all that power, and that they might actually turn this around in many different ways. There is the fact that the belief in the main character in the first novel leads to the great jihad that kills trillions of people, and he knows that and can't do anything about that because they just so fervently believe in him. And in later books, this also turns horrific when his, uh, I think it is his grandson, decides to literally uh, enact cruelty among the galaxy in the most literal sense. Like for thousands of years, he forces them into peace through literal boredom, basically, to make life literal agony in the galaxy because they can't enact with each other the conflict that is so core to human nature is replaced uh, by just complacency and a complete dictatorial power situation and i think this is a good example of why it might be a bad idea to pin all of that as a contrast where guilty crown believes it's good to pin all of these things onto one person a lot of people would argue that that's not how society functionally works unless you want to set yourself up for massive inequalities massive failure massive horrific authoritarianism in a sense which can very quickly turn against you and many others and it's just it's very it's very clear that i don't think that this is that this was very well uh, understood by the creators of the show uh but that's probably i mean we, we call this principle a great man history where, where history is put onto great man on individual leaders, but that often just a ignores the accomplishment of the people that you know carried that that making, but also uh, it kind of showcases that this system doesn't really work because even if you look at history or how history is teached, you know, like if we look at uh, uh, the American Civil War is often talked about in the in the in in the 
principles of how the men who led did go into this war no matter what even though you know the, the war itself was carried out by so many individuals who may or may not actually believed in the cause what they were fighting for just because yeah there, there were many reasons and like that's often ignored or even downplayed but on the flip side there 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 is a lot of downplaying of even the individual causes from believers in uh of, of like the civil war in general i mean the civil war specifically it also has like the racialized component because it was about slavery but still i think the the idea here is that we should we should be careful about about our leaders that's basically the, the statement which which would you novels do like uh putting ultimate power into the hands of a few can can have massive negative consequences and in a democracy you are less likely to experience that because many people are more easier able to spot the problems and mistakes and are as a group less likely to make these mistakes and they can understand what a common good really is by you know being part of the common good mm -hmm. i wanted to just real quick say um uh, since you brought up the civil war if you're interested in the civil war i will leave some links to um stuff by wb du bois about the civil war because um he was one of the first people to frame the civil war not as like white people fighting other white people to free black people but as like black people engage in slave revolts engage in like like actual like strikes engage in uh, uh code breaking and spying and all sorts of things to like actually like emancipate themselves so i i need to look up the exact text but you'll find them uh somewhere um so i think that was a pretty good breakdown of guilty crown and its fascism but its fascism leads of course as all fascism does to scapegoating and hatred of certain groups of people and in guilty crown it is i think kind of clearly uh disabled people and we can't talk about guilty crown without talking about how it talks about disabled people the show really wants to talk about disabled people y'all it spends it, it in a sense it, yeah. it, it spends all of its spare time making fucking this or that statement about um how it thinks disabled people should live and like no reviews that we can find at least on now even like bring it up which is disappointing but not um unsurprising no because it's it's very clear that a lot of people don't really think about that perspective in the first place like if you're not really affected by that i think a lot of people will not really consider it and i have to say this as a disabled person this is really what 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 broke me the first time watching it i could stand a lot of stuff but it's it's this complete and utter misunderstanding of what disabled people go through and what the motivations and goals are that really broke me especially since it's so poorly handled like yeah <sighs> there are two there are two sort of characters i think we can focus mm -hmm. on um the first one being our main character shu and then the second one being uh who um the reason why is because they're coded with a lot of um, symptoms of autism for example they can't mm -hmm. look um, they have trouble maintaining eye contact. Um, they often misunderstand social. Uh, he often misunderstands uh, social situations. He often um, takes things uh, literally, so on and so forth. And the second being ISA, who is a member of the resistance in heavy quotes because they're just a fascist paramilitary organization, but who's a member of the terrorist group and who, after an accident, is in a wheelchair. Mm. 
Uh, we can start with either one. Both are terrible. <laughs> I think with I think we should start with Shu because as a main character, he's there for the whole thing. Okay, sure. And like like the idea is that it's not really clear if it's supposed to be fully autism or just a result of PTSD. Yeah, I was careful with my wording there, saying like with symptoms of. Yeah, because it's. It's it's not it's not stated at all. Like mm-hmm. the the story never comes out saying this, but there's some some indicators about this whole concept. Like how Shu basically in the first episode explains how he how he doesn't see himself like the others, that he doesn't really have friends, so to speak, that all of these kind of relationships are more like him faking being like all the others. And I don't really think that the show pulls this off all that well because it kind of flip-flops between tropey protagonist behavior and really not understanding the cues. It jumps from A to B. And I don't know. What really kind of weirds me out about the situation is I don't have a problem if a show would like say we want to to put our protagonist into a, a, a neurodivergent state and put him into a leadership role and see what this would result in. But if that's really what they wanted, then their result was kind of terrible. And I think it's an it's an insult to the to to the people how how Shu's behavior is described as as often heartless, as self-aggrandizing, ignoring his friends for 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 kind of small scale things and I was like the show is I I, I think like the, the biggest problem that I have with this mostly is like how the main character is constantly seemingly motivated by by sex and romantic relationships oh yeah absolutely. which is I mean this is already pretty pretty terrible but uh I mean it needs to be stated when you want when, when anybody watches this and we hope you don't this show is is very very horny like i think we'll 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 give that the full treatment uh, in just a second but it is super horny (laughs) but but it's kind of and i don't it's not horny in a good way oh yeah it's it's horny in a bad way it's like oof if we go through all of that that will be a that might be tough so yeah but this this kind of element of of what shu is I don't know what it, what they really right. wanted to, not horny, to do like, with that flying. fully. Like, I cannot really fathom it. If it really is a depiction of... I mean, autism is technically mentioned in the show. I want to make this clear. But it's not mentioned in in relationship to any of the characters. But into relationship of a security system of a... Of a... Uh, well super orbital laser thingamajig and i'm like um what guilty crown a show that aggressively refuses to make sense and then kicks you in the face and says fuck you when you try to make sense of it it really doesn't make a lot of sense i wanted to highlight um not, not to cut you off but just hopefully it um, to help you a little bit. So there's an episode, which is also like ableist in its own right, where basically um, Shu has a friend and the friend has a younger brother who is diagnosed with the um, with the disease that the, the pandemic of the of the show. Right. And the brother um, has a terminal terminal illness. Right. 
So the older brother um, has to spend all of their time like caring for and uh, treating the younger brother so they do not die. Um, but it's kind of revealed that the younger brother can like hear the thoughts of the older brother because the disease is also magic, it gives them powers and stuff like that. And basically the younger brother finds out that he's like a burden to the older brother. Um, the show puts in pretty like harsh terms. Like he ha he hates his older brother because his older brother hates him for wasting his life taking care of someone who's terminally ill and like providing the assistance that they need to live like a decent life. And so basically the younger brother is um, so angry at the older brother and his hatred that he can't stop himself from killing his older brother. So our protagonist kills the younger brother instead and gets PTSD for that. I didn't cry per se because I have like weird things around crying, but like that really hurt. <laughs> like that that was fucking like this. That was that was disgusting. Like you're not a burden if you need other people to take care of you. Like I'm tall. I need people to move <laughs> when I sit places sometimes. Right, like other people need, like people need, we all need some accommodation from society. Like I, I've heard it described in this way and like all disability really is, is that in society we have some accommodations that we do for people no matter what. And we have some accommodations that for some reason we really don't want to do for other people. So you'll do accommodations for people being tall or short or whatever, but you won't do accommodations for people who like, you know, need assisted mobility devices. You won't do it for people who... Um, have like OCD or other things that are like labeled. Those are literally the only two differences. You're not burdening anyone for just expecting that society takes care of you in a way that like makes sense and that you can have like a decent life. Um, I want to stop there and let you comment on that before we get back to shoot because that was a little bit of a lot. I mean, yeah, that is that is basically it in in general sense, but it's it's very clear that. And then people talk about this. They, they, they often don't take into account actual mm. nurturing behavior. Like if we really want to, if we really want to want to break it down to an to an evolutionary thingamajig, it's it's like it's specifically the idea that we care for each other, which makes us stronger. It's a literal evolutionary trait, and it it kind of feels wrong that we kind of don't do this often anymore. That we have just you know, like kind of dislodged this element from us because modern society is so cruel and, you know, we kind of tend to... You know, I mean, to justify capitalism. Yeah, to, to justify ca capitalism is probably the case. But it's, it's, very, it's very essential to understand that it's not that hard to accommodate for others. It's not hard to care for others if you do it together, principally. And... And it's it's very clear that I don't know some force in society kind of has a problem with that for some reason. Hmm, what could it be? Hmm. Right. Um, and then when we get to Shu, uh, from the fallout of the PTSD, he can't be a soldier for he he has actual PTSD. He has nightmares. Um, he has panic attacks. He has situations where. He becomes like physically unable to function um, in a way that like makes sense, which is understandable for someone who's been like in a war situation who has just killed someone, right? When he has PTSD, immediately his superiors try to kill him. Everyone blames him for not being around to 
to continue to fight this weird paramilitary war against GHQ. Um, everyone says, uh, it's your fault that we're suffering. It's your fault for being weak. Um, if you're weak, you're useless, blah, 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 blah. And the show resolves this by basically making Shu get over his PTSD, right? He just kind of decides it's not a problem anymore, which is not how that works. <laughs> it's, you can't... They specifically make it in a way where it feels like he has to do something. They they tie it to his to his friends basically to to mm -hmm. basically do sure in many cases it's just specifically tied to Inari as a character that they 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 just dangle her in front of his head and like you have to save her and you have to get over it and if you don't do it she's gonna die and guy's gonna die and uh, it's it's a very manipulative element because. I don't think that should be how they treated this. But on the flip side, I have to say I'm, I'm a little bit guilty on that too because when this was happening in the show, I was making fun of Shu at that point, but only because I had seen it. I know what kind of character he actually is and how this actually plays. Right. I mean, I mean the other thing is just like because the, the characters are so poorly like conceptualized, it gets... It gets a little hard to to like really focus in on what's happening. Yeah, and so it, it for me it was very hard because I'm kind of sorry because even for a moment I didn't really see the character as a person. And as we discovered while reading the, the reviews, some other people had also problems with that. Oh yeah. So listen, if you wrote, I, I, I'm not really sure. Maybe we got a lot of new people in from our. Uh, joystick and rebel panda episode mm -hmm. so maybe there are a couple of like mal people listening to this listen if you write a guilty crown review about someone who's probably neurodivergent no if you write an anime review about a character who's probably neurodivergent and you're like the writers made the writers failed to make him feel human you're just being ableist okay yeah. like stop <laughs> don't <laughs> and it was more than one of you so so just uh, it's it's not really it, it's 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 something that like maybe you people don't think about it so i'm not like blaming anyone but like yeah yeah like, th think about what you're actually saying there that's that's always why i make the distinction between talking about a character as if it is a character and talking about a person because there mm -hmm. are some clear differences like i would never say that uh, the lack of character indicates that this is not a person that's just that's just not how this is like i think right. that good characterization is essential to tell good stories but sometimes it can happen but but i understand that this is not always how this goes so so please if you want to write a neurodivergent character maybe study study neurodivergent people get along with them talk to them have a conversation yeah i have done this for a very long time with a lot of people and I'm always surprised what, what you find when you actually look for it, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah, but yeah, the show does a very poor job of, of both presenting it and resolving it. We also like have come to the distinction that sometimes Shu just changes character characteristics from episode to episode. So yeah, I can understand that the inconsistency kind of hurts this whole argumentation, but that's just bad writing. That's not that's not on neurodivergent people, okay? Yeah. Lastly, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about how the show treats ISA. Um, ISA 
like we said she's in a wheelchair uh how does the show do her wrong okay so i think i have to 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 give a little bit of a primer on her i think so so i say from the very beginning as part of the uh, as part of a terrorist organization and a instrumental member she is the she's the mech pilot of the team yes there are mechs in there i i i often forget that too and she is in a wheelchair after a incident it's not explained what the incident is but i would say uh but but it's very clear that she is uh not able to to without a wheelchair go around outside of of the mech and for the first half she's very strong-willed try to get these things in and uh to 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 present this and is even is she is technically speaking in her own group of people very respected even tasked with with training shu for the for the coming uh interactions but there is this this scene where they try to basically explain this and it's it's a scene that goes on for way too long explains way too much and goes into great detail of why she doesn't want to have help from others that she should be strong on her own and that she doesn't want to see that and i'm like I understand what you want more yeah more specifically um there are multiple scenes probably too many actually now that i think about it given how little this happens in real life but there are multiple scenes in which isa gets like knocked out of her wheelchair and she refuses to get help getting back into wheelchair because this is like a sign of weakness or something so i'm not advocating never ever ever touch someone who's like in like an assistive mobility device like without asking them first like this is like a clear and obvious thing but like if people need help sometimes getting to and from places that's not to frame the the fact of needing help as a weakness and to frame strength as doing everything by yourself when you're disabled even if it comes at like like a physical emotional or practical cost to you it's just it's also it's 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 evil it's 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 literally evil i i, I don't know how else to put it i mean i'm i'm honestly like used to that kind of depiction over the years like when it comes to depictions of disabled people in media that you know this is how they often are treated or presented and this is pretty bad but i think i think the greatest sin happens later on like where they really take this to to the top where I, I just say this in episode 13 they have a problem that after her mech got destroyed she starts to feel literally useless because she has no legs and it's and it's literally stated about that factor and it's even and it's even implied that the only reason she liked guy in the first place because she had like kind of this relationship was because she, because he gave her legs mm-hmm. and this is when the thing gets gets really bad like where oh boy it turns out uh so shu can pull out voids out of people's hearts right and so it turns out that isa's voids is is legs <laughs> i'm sorry it's not funny because it's really ableist but it's so it's so bad it's so bad so it's legs and she can walk again and then she starts liking Shu because Shu gave her legs now. It's so insulting. It's so absolutely insulting. 
It's ridiculous. Like the the, the assertion that the one thing that uh, disabled people think about obsessively is how to be like normal or whatever. I say it in quotes. You can't see me do yeah. the air quotes. It's like the it's it's the problem. It is the source of a lot of a lot of um, society's ableism. So yeah. Honestly, just how dare the show treat this like it's saying anything like worthwhile or worth listening to? Yeah, and it's it gets it it honestly like gets over the show even worse because she's like she's actually a very committed character who who even thinks like in the end doing something which which could technically kill her just for the others just to pull her weight consistently, jumping out of the wheelchair to grab something, and I'm like, oh girl, what are you doing? I know you're doing this for the right things, but you're not... You're gonna, oh. And she's constantly denied. This is the worst thing about this. She's constantly talked down by others about this. No, you shouldn't do this. This will be bad for you. You know, She doesn't even get the opportunity to get some agency done. Mm-hmm. And it's so... It's so insulting. The, be- the, the worst part about this is that throughout the series... She has a rivalry with one of the pilots from the other side. And in the final episode, they reveal that both she got a new mech and the guy got, and her rival got a new mech. And they don't even give her the satisfaction of defeating her own rival. Yeah. This is taken away from her. Even this little bit of agency is consistently wrestled away from her. It's yeah. It's so patronizing the whole way through. Guilty crown, everybody. <laughs> we also discussed what could be a better way of presenting this, like just by just by changing the type of void, like so it isn't legs. You literally just anything other than legs. Any, anything ever. Anything, anything other. Yeah. Just, anything holy else. Holy shit. The idea was, if you really want to go with the idea that it is a mobility power, we thought that it would be better to have wings. That would have been like, that would have been actually better. Like wings, which you not only can fly, but also like protect people. You know, like... I'm reminded of uh, uh, Decadence, just real quick before we close out. Yeah. Um, In in Decadence, uh, the main character, Natsume, who I love and is my daughter. Anyway... (laughs) Natsume, um, she she lost a hand when she was younger, and she has um, a prosthetic limb, right? Hmm. And there are people who bully her for it, right? And yeah. um, it's shown that like when she goes into fights and stuff, her hand like slows her down in order to, in order to be like as efficient as she should be. And so what decadence does is really interesting. Rather than just like give her a like 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 a regular hand. They, they just give her a hand that is more suited to the task that she wants to do. It's still like a... They give her a better prosthetic with the implication being the problem was never with the fact that Natsume uses prosthetics, but that she was denied proper prosthetics. Yeah, yeah she was she was too poor to afford the prosthetics that she needs to actually like effectively navigate in her environment. And once yeah. she was actually given that, she rocked, right? <laughs> The, she never needed to be like like in quote air quotes again like normal she just needed the proper support yes <laughs> which is why decadence is an actual good show about revolution instead of fascism but yeah 
It never ends. It, it drives me mad, honestly, like thinking about it. Really? Never does. We, we don't have a terrible amount of time to talk about just the sexualization of all the characters. I think it's very self-apparent. It, it is when you watch it. There are several scenes in which like um, prisoners are like beat up or like taken or um, by like by the police or whatever, and because they're girls, they get like boob physics and such. And it's like, yeah, why? No, don't. <laughs> it's just. Besides the fact that the main character has to literally grab into the cleavage of a female characters to acquire the superpower. Oh yeah, the, the entire time. Did I write down Titty Sword in my notes? I don't think I did. <laughs> but but I was like, oh, okay, it's the Titty Sword. <laughs> that she it's just like, grabs out. It's like, this, this, is, this is kind of a worst thing about this because early on he's... Nobody remembers that they do this and they basically fall unconscious. So it's like, and I, I, this is this is the perfect date rape power, and I hate that. Yeah, it's like it, it's absolutely horrific. Oh, and absolute. If you actually must watch this, if you cannot be stopped, mm-hmm. please be careful. Episode fourteen contains a group rape scene played for jokes. Oh yeah, I cannot understate how disgusting this is. Oh yeah, it there it has. Every content warning, and probably every content warning that is listed at the beginning of this episode, also applies to Guilty Crown itself. So just be really careful with it. We have all the content warnings. It's probably not as bloodily violent most of the time as it, as other shows, but I mean, there is a there's a dismemberment scene in there. Yeah. So so you have been warned. That being said, please don't do that to yourself. Yeah. Nightmare Alpha, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Guilty Crown. Uh, thanks for watching it on the server. Uh, we do watches of bad anime or good anime or just anime that Raghavan and I need to watch in order to write essays about it are becoming somewhat frequent on the server. So if you want to see either of us watch an anime in real time and like critique it and like go through our thought process of what we're thinking when we're when we're like writing stuff die both inside and outside yeah you can just join the server um Ragu, if you have any closing thoughts uh closing thoughts um i think life's too short to waste it on bad anime spend some more time with your dog that's a that's a good point no <laughs> So yeah, I'm Nightmare Alpha. Uh, you can find me if you want on Twitter at Nightmare Alpha or on YouTube if you want. Most of my stuff is very old, so I don't know. Uh, I try to come back uh, or on Twitch. It's it's everywhere. If you can write my name down, you can find me anywhere. Uh, and I mean this. Be careful with all the sources. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, see ya. See ya.